Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie. Hey Claire, how are you? I'm good, it's November already. Where has this year gone? We are not going to talk about what happens next month on this podcast. No, we are not talking about it at all. In fact, we're not even thinking about it. I'm so happy that you've taken on my tradition, which is that you can't talk about what happens in December until Thanksgiving. It's November. It's all about Thanksgiving, not about what happens in December. You're only allowed to look forward on the day after Thanksgiving. Okay, so the deal is I observe that rule if I get an invitation to your Thanksgiving table again, because it is definitely time to face the green jelly once again. But there's lots of other things other than the green jelly. I mean, okay, I just want to say I'm sorry, Antonita, if you're listening, but no one in Britain likes green jelly. No one likes it even if I leave out the grated carrots or the raisins that you sometimes put in it and just put pineapple, which seems like it should be good, right? Last year, I just made it with mint, lime and mint. It sounds good. I don't know why you're complaining about, Claire. Well, uh, you know, we do have mint sauce with lamb. Well, exactly. So... I think the thing that threw me, though, was the, I mean, for our listeners to explain, this is a pack of the cubed jelly you make up for, you know, dessert or put in a trifle, which is served with the turkey, which uh, I kind of wasn't expecting. I expected it to be more savoury and vinegary, like our mint sauces. I wasn't ready for the sweet limeness with the mint leaves. What's that sauce that you put with lamb that has, like, lots of blackberry or blackcurrant or something like that's quite sweet. I can't remember the name oh, of it. I'm sure all of you out there will know. It's a bit like that, It's but it's green jello. You have to have it on the table for Thanksgiving. It is sweet, it's lime. But then last year I tried to tone it down. I just put mint in it. None of the other things, but n- nobody liked it. They all tried it, to be fair, but nobody liked it. But I've taken on the tradition of having a very long Thanksgiving table. And the way that in my Ohio family used to always descend on us, and descend sounds like a bad word, really love it. Fight over who was going to sleep under the dining room table, on the dining room table, on the pool table, under the pool table. Everybody had their places set out before we'd even set the table. And then the table would snake from the dining room right through the hall, right through into other rooms because it all had to be connected. So last year I took on that tradition and decided I would invite loads of people and, you know, children were all allowed a guest and it became a very long, wonderful table. So will I do it again? I think so. I think it's just too much fun to not do. And you have to put all these wonky, bring down all the tables, including desks in your house, and line them up how it's snaking through your house. It's not hood cuisine. It's literally family food done in a very fun way. And just before Thanksgiving, of course, we've got Book Week Scotland, which I'm really looking forward to this year. We've got an open book day of memoir writing on Wednesday, the 16th of November. And we'll have lots of opportunities for you to log on to and join in with some creative writing around the theme of writing memoir from lots of different perspectives. And those sessions will be run by our lead reader team. So you need to keep an eye on our newsletter and that's where you'll find all the information information and be able to sign up or log in. We should add that those are in addition to our usual open book creative writing sessions. So although we ask you to stick to two a month in terms of creative writing, these ones are in addition. So feel free to join one of them as well.
This month, we've got one of our terrific uh, new pieces of writing uh, called Waiting by Alexa Callow. Excited about that short story. And then also uh, a terrific paired poem, or I think it's terrific, you can decide for yourself, by Helen Mort from one of her older pamphlets, not her most recent collections. She's a remarkable poet, but it's actually from the depths of my library, one of her early tall lighthouse pamphlets called A Pint for the Ghost. Do you want to start us off, Claire? Yeah, I'll do that. Waiting. It was, objectively, not a great day. I had a job interview where I had inadvertently laughed at a serious question. The interviewers, three of them, exchanged glances that clearly said, this girl is deranged. And then the second bad thing happened. My bus broke down. We were on the ring road, but I reckoned I could walk. However, the driver seemed possessive of us passengers and made us stay. He actually said, you shall not pass, as he blocked the folding door with his arms. In the face of low-level grumbling, he muttered about insurance, so most people sat back down. A couple of lads forced open the middle doors and hopped off, and a couple of other people slipped out after them before the driver could close them up again. I'm a rule follower, so I sat down and waited. My battery was on like 3%, so I texted my mum and told her. I don't want her to be worried because it comes out as really annoyed. Then I shut the phone off and sat there. No phone, no book, proper stone age. I don't normally like to be alone with my thoughts. Does anyone? Dutifully, my brain started replaying the interview. I physically winced at the memory of that laugh. I'll be lying awake at night thinking about that for the next 30 years, minimum. I just sat, with all the other passengers too timid to seek freedom. Some people had phones clearly on more than 3%. Someone had a newspaper, old school. But most people looked like they were in some sort of suspended animation, obediently waiting, doing nothing. I watched a wasp buzz against the window then it fumbled out through the open top bit. I stared at my shoes, all shined up for the doomed interview. Time seemed to slow, then stop entirely. So when the old lady in the priority seat in front of me turned round and said something to me, the opportunity for diversion outweighed the fear of getting into a conversation with a randomer. But I didn't catch what she said. Don't say what. Say pardon, my dad piped up from my subconscious. Pardon? I said, do you think he's going to hold us to ransom? She pointed to the driver, still stationed at the door. She said it so matter of fact, no hint of a smile, that I didn't know whether it was a joke. Ha, I hazarded. She eyed me then, like she's really taking me in. I was once trapped in a train for nearly four hours, she declared. Some sort of bridge problem. Let's hope for a speedier resolution. Oh no, that's terrible, I murmured. I survived. Today I will miss bingo. That is my cross to bear. I didn't know what to say to that. I paused too long. And then another slightly pathetic, Oh no, shall we stop there for a moment? Okay, so how old do you think this person is? Well, they're going for a job interview, but the use of things like 
it was like 3%. I know. And then refers to the person they're speaking to as a randomer. Yeah, I love the word randomer. I thought, oh, that's just brilliant. That's exactly what my teens would say. And that idea of like not wanting to, I just said the word like, maybe you just planted that in my brain. The idea of wanting to text mum and let mum know because when mum gets annoyed, it comes out as cross. I thought, oh, I probably do too as I read that. Proper stone age is so funny. Yeah. So I think probably we're talking late teens, maybe 16, 17 yeah, for sure. And and also, no one our age would ever call someone an old lady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for fear we get called one ourselves. So yeah. Um, yeah, she seems funny. And I love that idea that like, um, she doesn't really want to be alone with her thoughts. You know, does anyone? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I would love a moment. I'm sure her mom would think, I would love a moment alone with my own thoughts. Thank you very much. Yeah, I love she's had her shoes shined for the doomed interview. I know, all shined up, and I wonder who did the shining. My guess is it's not her. If she's close enough to her mum to message to say she's stuck on a bus, the mum's close enough to her to say, for goodness sake, hand me those shoes. Let me do something about them. Um, yeah, and I love this idea that the, 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 the chance chatting to someone because there's nothing else to do so you might as well speak to that person you know and that's a generation gap I think you know grannies or grandparents that I know would absolutely speak to people on buses anyway not because the bus is stuck but just generally you know kind of curious um, about what the person next to them has been up to or you know would comment on your children I always found that when I was traveling with small children the older folk on the bus would always comment in a nice way you know not always in a nice way but you know generally saying something nice or kind or just curious in a way that we don't anymore we're all in our little silos aren't we I like the woman who turns around she seems to have a little sort of sen- good sense of humor quite dry sense of humor yeah and you don't expect it right so I'm sure that the the girl in the story isn't expecting her to say "Ugh, today I'll miss bingo that's my cross to bear that's quite funny in the same sentence as being trapped in a train for four hours and that kind of do you think he's going to hold us to ransom that's funny and the girl not knowing if it's a joke and I wonder whether that's a generational thing because I would absolutely know that was a joke but maybe if this teen doesn't have a lot of experience of kind of funny older folk if you know what I mean and I wonder as well if it's the delivery as well you know there's no hint of a smile so that sort of dry wry sense of humor you know it's maybe something that she doesn't recognize yeah which is really you know I think it's really great for this girl to have how whatever her age to have that experience of being exposed in some way to someone who she wouldn't normally talk to so definitely found that with my one of my daughters has got a job waitressing and um you know she has lots of different experiences probably more I would say than many of her peers in terms of travel and music and other things she had lots of amazing opportunities to encounter people in different cultures and things but the waitressing has been a real eye-opener because you meet people all sorts of different people every day. You know, it's not the same group of people. It's not the same group of cohorts. She's obviously got work colleagues, but you never know who's going to come in off the street, whether they're having a good day or a bad day, whether there's, you know, smiley. What And generally, your their problems have nothing to do with you. But it's been a really interesting experience for her, I think, to see that breadth of people as are taking their meals in a way that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise necessarily. And I know your your son had the same this summer. Yeah, yeah, he was working during the fringe 
on the door of one of the venues. So he was dealing with all sorts of experiences and people having lost tickets and needing to wait for friends who were bringing tickets and people needing out of the venue during the performance, you know, when he technically wasn't supposed to open the door. But, you know, all those sort of things where they're being asked to make decisions and engage and explain themselves um, in a way that is kind of out with their normal experience and all to the good. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. I think my daughter has found it interesting, particularly in a restaurant situation when people want to speak to her rather than just give her their order. You know, they'll say, where are you from? And where's your name from? And what would you recommend? You know, trying to engage her in chat, um, which she finds really interesting, you know, and then she's all able to make her own huge generalizations about people from, particularly from America, which I allow her to do, given that she's half American, but also, um, you know, the idea of lots of older folk coming in and eating on their own, um, particularly on a Sunday, she finds that really sad, you know. Um, so I think that's been a really interesting eye-opener for her too. So it sounds like this person in the story maybe – hazarding doesn't necessarily get that because she seems surprised and not sure what to do but she's sort of stuck and she might as well I think yeah let's see what happens we sat a bit longer in silence I felt the weight of social convention to say the next thing but I couldn't think of anything interesting and I started to sweat lightly so I ended up blurting I just had a terrible job interview she turned sideways in her seat to look at me more clearly. I see. How terrible. I laughed when they asked why I wanted to work in the pharmaceutical industry. Yes? It's stacking shelves at the chemists. Oh. I see. Well, it is a pompous question. She waved her hand dismissively and looked indignant on my behalf. We both fell silent again. A child near the back screamed about being bored and was shushed by their mum. The man with the newspaper flapped it a couple of times, folded it, and put it down next to him. I could have borrowed it, but one stranger interaction at a time was enough. The car sailed by, the oblivious occupants running on their own schedules. In 1974, I had a disastrous job interview, the woman suddenly said. I was returning to work after my first husband's business folded, awful time. I fell down a short flight of stairs and got a nosebleed. Did you get the job? Stupid question. I should have asked if she was all right. Well, yes. So there is hope for you yet. She looked at her watch. We've been here an hour and 20 minutes. My daughter will be sending a search party. I didn't have anything to say to that, but I tried to make up for it with nodding. I thought about offering my phone, but the 3%, my man never texts back anyway. Some more moments dragged by. Driver's radio crackled. He took it off his belt and said, come in, control, over. But no one responded. Cars kept passing us. Someone at the back slammed open one of the windows. I wondered if I could slither out and walk home. Just when I thought our conversation was fully over, the woman turned to me again. I have the benefit of age, and I know for a fact that when you're fretting about that thing you did or said, no one else is thinking about it. It lives on in your mind only. Pay it no heed. Trust me. This felt like a piece of precious wisdom. I don't think either of my parents has ever said anything so useful. 
They are from the don't go on about it school of thinking. This bus lady though, she got it. Thank you. I whispered to the back of her head and for a stupid moment, I felt like I could cry. Instead, I stared out of the window and let my mind wander. After a while, the driver yelled from the front, startling us all. Reinforcements on the way. He was loving this. And eventually, an empty bus labeled Rescue Bus showed up, and we were shepherded onto it. I lost sight of the old lady. She was living that priority seat life and got put on first, and I was near the back. I turned on my phone to text mom I was on the way. Before I could make the call, a voicemail arrived, and I risked the precious battery to listen to it. It was the boss from the chemist offering me the job. Oh, I love the end of that story. Although I kind of wanted it to be the mum. The mum who never texts back. Oh, we never text back. My children forever complain that I don't text back. Listen, all of you out there judging me. The truth is I text them back 50% of the time, but they send so many texts. And then when they really need something, they send another one saying, mum, with six question marks, and then I reply. But it's like, could you order me this? And I need this. And next Thursday, I mean, there's no way I'd spend, it's a full-time job replying to four children's texts. Okay. Well, maybe mine are just not quite as communicative. (laughs) Because when they do text, it's generally of relevance. Yeah, no, I would say mine is largely, it's of relevance at some point, but usually not in the kind of on fire list of things that need to be dealt with. The funny story about falling down the stairs, it wasn't funny, it's sad sad in the sense that she got injured, made me think of a terrible interview I had once where I was sitting, as you do when in an interview, when you're in a suit and heels, with my legs crossed, normal, right? So far so good. Got up and my leg that had been crossed, one of them, was completely asleep or what do you call it, pins and needles, but it didn't even have the pins or needles yet, like it was gone. I fell over, like I literally (laughs) tried to put, I didn't realize it and obviously I tried to walk on it and I just fell over in the middle of this poor man's office, hit myself on the side of the desk, bruises everywhere, complete mess. And and of course, like the girl, I got the job, but um, I didn't take it, but I got the job. So come on, Claire, what have you done in an interview? I don't know. You're more sensible than me. Well, and I lucked out in my law interviews that my, at the first interview I went to, I got offered the job and it was the firm that I wanted to do my traineeship with. So I just took it and then I didn't have to go through any more of those horrible interview processes. Um, And then I stayed with that, that firm when I qualified. So had limited interview experience. I remember um, one summer when I was, before I went to university and like you had done a sort of summer job to get that on my CV in a law firm and uh, near where I lived. And I um, had got, you know, a couple of new suits to wear to the to my law job, my summer job, and literally spent the whole summer in this dusty, manky, <laughs> disgusting, old walk-in safe because the law firm that I was working for was merging with another smaller law firm and I just literally spent the summer sorting through really old, musty, dusty files of share certificates and things. And, you know, I should have gone in in my oldest tracksuits and hoodie because I would come home covered in dust every day. You know, with that dry way your hands get when you're touching musty paper. Um, But no, no, I persevered and wore my suits all summer in my heels. Now We're I not think, selling this, yeah, are we? Now I, I think I would have gone back and said to 
to the partner I was working for, uh, I'm just going to come in in casual clothes for as long as you need me in that safe. But when you're 17 or 18, you just, you don't do these things, do you? No. And also, like, look at this stupid question that this panel's asked her. Why do you want a job in pharmaceuticals? She should, I would have said, don't be ridiculous. You know, I mean, this isn't a job in pharmaceuticals. I'm not wanting to be a chemist or, you know, a pharmacist. I'm wanting to stack your shelves. But then they wouldn't, you know, what was she supposed to say? Um, I probably, I wouldn't, I don't blame her for laughing. And they probably, if they had any sense, they would go back and think that was a stupid question to ask. No wonder she laughed. Yeah, and also, what sort of person doesn't laugh? Do you yeah, really exactly. want them in your shop? <laughs> yeah, it's a sense of someone having a decent sense of humor. So, And then let's talk about that lovely little bit of advice, you know, that no one else is thinking about it. It's true. It's a great little, um, you know, in some ways I love poems that have a kind of cracker line in the middle that is a little bit of advice or something that really rings true. And in this story, it's that line about, you know, nobody's worrying about the thing that you're fretting about. It's only you that carry it. You know, I love that little bit of advice. And and her response to that makes me feel sad because, you know, she doesn't have a family that says things like that. And, and I have a lot of time for parents who are too, you know, the reality is 99.99% of our lives as parents is driving kids around and making sure they're clothed and fed and you know, have what they need. And as you say, making sure they're doing their homework and brushing their teeth and, you know, just the actual sheer physicality of parenting doesn't leave a lot of room for this kind of advice. Um, It's the rest of the world out there that you're listening that need to tell the kids it because it's pretty, you know, it's pretty hard to be on top of it all. I'm not sure they'd listen to us telling it them anyway. (laughs) No, I'll tell you. You tell my kids and I'll tell yours. (laughs) But it's, it's, I think I was touched by the fact that our teenager in this story recognized it as a piece of precious wisdom. I do think that they're better at this age than I ever was of hearing other people. You know, at at 17 or 18, I thought adults would just know what they're talking about, largely, although I was very polite to them. Whereas I think in my household, you know, maybe they don't always want to listen to, although they're better, but, you know, always want to listen to what I say. But I've realized that, you know, one child in particular wants to do a course that's very similar to a lot, you know, a lot of the things that my writer friends have done is really happy to have coffee with them and and hear their advice about what to do or how to tackle something or what to write an essay on. And I, I would never have done that. So one, thank you to the friends out there that have done that for her. But also, I think they're just better. There's something about this generation that is kind of more open somehow to that kind of wisdom. As you say, probably not for coming from a parent. But I think my kids are much more open to it and much more. And maybe it's because of all the kind of Karen hashtags or, you know, or maybe it's just TikTok or you know, there are more accessible ways for that kind of wisdom to filter through than there was for us. I don't know. Yeah, this is true. So we just had books, although they were good. But if you weren't a book reader, forget it. And also, you know, your kids follow your friends, your parents' friends. So, you know, my kids might follow you on Instagram. So if you put something, they'll hear it or see it in a way that I never would have had access to the thoughts or movements of my parents' friends. I think we also had, you know, the occasional gem of a teacher, but um, that's a different relationship again, isn't it? It is. Although my, you know, I don't know my children, because there are four of them coming through the same school and you'll have the same, they have their favorites, you know, and they have their funny things that they do. And one I know 
I kept a list of quotes from that teacher that were really funny, you know, not outrageous, but funny bits of wisdom. So yeah, you're right. The teachers really make a big difference too. I think one gave that teacher the list of quotes or sent it to him uh, when she left. And he replied saying his lawyers would be in touch. (laughs) (laughs) I love the bus driver in this as well. I do too. (laughs) such a caricature, isn't he, of himself? (laughs) That like... 20 minutes of fame, or in this case, two hours of fame, you know, you, you see it a lot, don't you? Like when you're called up and then everybody thinks mm, you're just having your 20 minutes of fame. But I love the way um, he speaks. Yeah. And he, he treats it all as a military operation and him as the general in charge, wielding the, the walkie talkie. Control over. It's great. But aren't you surprised by that kind of formality of speech? You know, when we were away swimming and we were on a boat, I remember the captain of the boat using the walk, whatever you call it, it's not a walkie-talkie, the radio to say, hello, you know, effectively citing our coordinates, how many people were on the boat, we were going, it was incredibly formal speech, almost poetic. And I was surprised by it, that there wasn't, you know, that hasn't seeped into that kind of communication. It was still very formal, like you might have expected it to be 100 years ago, Um, rather than being like, hi, this is Neil, I'm taking out eight people on a rib or whatever. Yeah, and we're off to Little Barbara and we'll be back at tea time. Yeah, exactly. Shout if you don't hear from us. So I think there's something nice about it, but it feels quite arcane too, which makes me think that the driver is old. I thought it was quite reassuring though. It made me feel like he knew exactly what he was doing. And maybe that's why the language hasn't changed because it makes you, it gives you confidence. You know, if you heard your airline pilot say, hey guys in the control tower. Can we land this this bird? (laughs) (laughs) You might kind of worry. So maybe there's something in that. I don't know. We'll leave that with you out there listening to tell us if you feel more comfortable with formality when it's situations of danger. That was a great story. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Alexa, for that. Should we have a look at our poem today? Yeah. Do you want to read it, Claire? Um, I think, as we said earlier, it's by Helen Morris. Thank you to Helen for letting us use it today. And it's called A Pint for the True Shepherds. Now the chance is gone, I wish I'd bought that man a pint, the farmer who sat silent next to me through midnight mass and raised his eyebrows as the well-fed vicar reveled in the story of the gentle shepherds. Friends, how like the Lord's own servants are the men round here who still keep animals today. And as the organist received the nod to play, The man who hadn't spoken took his cue at last, rose to his feet, said Reverend Thano's nout about sheep. I love that poem. Just great. I think I picked it because I was thinking about the connection of what what people do and don't say when they're sitting next to each other and the chance has gone to say something. So in some ways in the story, I want the, the, the girl to be Alexa and her be writing about a woman who she didn't have a chance to thank properly. For the precious piece of wisdom, you mean? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you see people do things that are extraordinary or say something extraordinary and you think, I wish I'd said good on you or well done or that was brave. You know, I wish I'd had the courage to say it myself or expressed admiration in the, as it is in this. And and sometimes as well, I've had the converse experience where something's happened and I haven't spoken up and I've kind of wished afterwards I'd been brave enough to say, you know, that's not fair or actually that's not quite right. You know, whatever it was. 
Yeah, and we're and we're trained not to for some reason, aren't we? We're trained to in those situations and the ones Helen's talking about when somebody's been challenged. I don't know. I feel like we're kind of trained our training is to say very little or not get involved or certainly not to challenge. I my training is to not challenge in the first place. So while I might admire that and I might jump in, I would be very rarely be the first one to challenge someone, I think. I'd more likely remove myself from the situation rather than say, hey, unless it was in defense of someone else, I guess that's the situation I usually step in. I love the idea of uh, someone standing up and telling the reverend that they know nothing about what they're talking about. Yeah, and I, I like the idea as well that the voice they wish for is that they bought the man a pint. Not that they'd said, well done, or you're right, or you're, you know, I agree. It's, I wish I bought that man a bite. That's such a British thing, though, isn't it? Yeah, Um, exactly. That's why I'm commenting. Who was the man who put himself in massive danger when there was a a bomber at Glasgow Airport? He tackled him. Do you remember? That's right, yeah. And and someone set up a, like, GoFundMe, whatever it was back then, to buy the man a pint. And he had thousands and thousands and thousands of pints. I mean, somebody did eventually did the calculation that he could never drink so many pints, even if he had six a day for the rest of his life. He, they had just bought him so many pints. So that idea of buy the man a pint for you know saving us or putting himself in harm's way is a particularly brilliant British thing, I think. But as you say, it's also very British to want to buy them a pint and not say, well done. Or to go and say to the minister, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I note that nothing was said to the minister, you know, in the sense that, yeah, there was no challenge backed up there in any way. Just the buying of the pint, quiet buying of a pint. I love that the vicar's well fed as well. There's so much uh, information contained in those two little words. And also that the person who, who makes his, who waits for the organist, for the, the organist has been nodded to start. So that's also his cue because he knows he's not going to be able to be heard, you know, in about 10 seconds because the organist is going to swing in. So the, yeah, there's so much in these sort of little lines about the, the what happens with strangers, what happens with those kind of going beyond their capacity for holding an audience or for power or however you want to see it. I wondered if he waited till the organist actually struck up so that his comment was, you know, only heard by those proximate to him. Well, also, you know, it's regular sometimes for some people um, to leave when the last organ tune is being played. And not not that I would say that I'm a regular churchgoer by a long stretch anymore, but you know, there was a whole flood of people leaving as soon as the last piece was played. So some people going even further than that, you know, some people might have assumed he was just leaving because he had to go somewhere or because he didn't want to sit through the last organ voluntary or whatever. But I thought in my head, because I wanted to give him more credit, I thought, you know, quite often an organ voluntary will start with a couple of notes held for quite a long time. So it was a moment knowing that you got a punch, sucker punch in before the organist went for it. And the organist wouldn't have usually is behind the pulpit and won't be able to see what's happening. Um, so it's a bit of a sucker punch in the sense that then the organ would swing in and that was it, the last word. So you can read it however you like it. Have a look at it yourself and you can read it. However, give him as much or as little credit as you like. But I think it's an, enough credit for Helen to have wanted to buy him a pint. Exactly. And I love the way that um, what he says is nout, you know, that just, it just, I don't know, lends so much, I think, weight and truth 
and you can hear the word coming out of his mouth. It fits so well that he says now rather than nothing. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the whole pamphlet is called A Pint for the Ghost, and it it does um, it does involve ghosts, but it also does involve a fair number of pints as well. So one about a Guinness and other things, so it's, it's quite a nice connection between this little set of poems. I think that's all from us today. Thank you so much again for letting us be in your ears and sharing the podcast with us, and we'll be back next month. Until then, 